Back in 2019, I had a full knee replacement. There was no way to avoid it, and a little bit apprehensive knowing that I was going under the knife and knowing that there is some possibility of not coming out of extensive surgery, I did something. I put something in my pant pocket, my trouser pocket, and that was a piece of paper that had the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism written out on it. I'd written it out. I just simply wanted God to know and anyone else to know, should I not survive? And they went through my things that at the end of my life, if that was the day I ended my life, uh, I believe the gospel. Here's what the Heidelberg Catechism question one actually says. This was what was in my pocket. Question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Then question two, which was not in on, on the piece of paper at this point, reads this. Question two, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, first, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Question three, from where do you know your sins and misery? Answer, from the law of God. Four, question four, what does God's law require of us? Answer, Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Question five, can you keep all this perfectly? Answer, no, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. I mention this because this is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? This is life in its understanding of the assurance of salvation. Where do we get that? And whether we are young in the faith or mature in the faith, the gospel has to always be center stage. Many have the view that the gospel is something that you get over after the first few weeks as a Christian. You understand the gospel. It's like a, 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 a ladder and a ladder of steps. And the first step is the gospel and you build up from there. I don't believe that's a biblical way of understanding how the gospel functions in the Christian. Rather than it's a step, it's a foundation, and then you kind of forget about it. It's more the hub of the wheel and the spokes or everything else you learn in the Christian life and how it applies, how the gospel applies to 
uh, your relationships, to your understanding of uh, his working in your life, to, to the workplace, to the family life, all of these things as spokes with the gospel center stage as the hub in all things. Elite theologians, long established theologians need the gospel too. Christians need the gospel as well as the unsaved, those that don't know Christ. I'd like to read something. It's uh, an article, The Active Obedience of Christ, No Hope Without It. And uh, I'm simply going to read some portion of it. Shortly before he died, January the 1st, 1937, Dr. J. Gresham Machen sent a final telegram to his friend, Professor John Murray. Just to interject here, these were two elite theologians, and they were friends. The words of the telegram were these, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. Now, I'm convinced that in these short words, Dr. Machen was able to express the essence of the biblical gospel. Let me explain. Theologians talk of a double function of Christ as our Savior in saving us, his passive and active obedience. If you've got a piece of paper and you're taking notes, please write these words down. Passive obedience and active obedience. The passive obedience refers to his laying down his life for us, his sheep. He died an atoning death, paying the full penalty for sins. Yet what is often missed is the function of his 33 and a half years of life on earth. Scholars believe that's the length of his life, where he perfectly fulfilled all the demands of God's law. We call this a life of perfect righteousness. Jesus did not merely avoid sin. He lived a righteous life, one that fulfilled the entire law of God. What God demanded, Christ has provided for us. And that's what we're getting to in this statement about the active obedience of Christ. This righteousness is the righteousness of Christ that he fulfilled when he lived every demand of God perfectly and fulfilled those laws of God. And that is what is credited to our account as believers in Christ. What is? The righteous life of Christ. Christ himself is our righteousness. He not only provides righteousness, he could provide it by going to some tree and saying, here's, here's, here's a fruit called righteousness. Here, girls and boys, here, men and women. Here's righteousness as a gift. That, that's not what it is. It's God giving us Christ's own righteousness as a gift. His righteous life counts for us. That needs some explanation. But let me say it this way. Christ died for our sins and lived for our righteousness. Let me say that again. Christ died for our sins and lived for our righteousness. So when we're talking about the passive obedience of Christ, all of the life and death and burial and resurrection of Christ is is 
certainly termed as obedience, but we're making a distinction between what Christ did passively as he hung on the cross and absorbed the, uh, the wrath of God due to us for our sin and his active obedience, which was the 33 and a half years of life before the cross. You see, to save us, God didn't send Christ down on a Friday and do a weekend's work for us, dying for us on the Friday, being buried, and then rising again on the Sunday morning. We know that's not the story. The story starts with the incarnation. God became a man, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, a virgin birth, God became a man and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And He lived this righteous life without sin. Tempted in every way, like we are, yet without sin, the book of Hebrews says. So Christ died for our sins. That's something that you should have learned the moment you've uh, entered a church. You should hear Uh, the message of salvation and hear that Christ died for our sins. What is often missed is the fact that he lived for our righteousness. He not only died an atoning death for our sins, but before he ever went to the cross, he lived a sinless life that perfectly fulfilled the righteous standards of God's law. You see, if all that was necessary for us being justified, let me explain that word, it means to be declared righteous in the sight of God, to be declared righteous by God. If all was necessary was Jesus' death on the cross, he could have come down on a parachute on Good Friday, died for us and then rose again three days later. But we know that's not what happened. Why? Because that would never have been enough. The good news of the, of the gospel is certainly that Christ died for our sins, but it also included, it includes the fact that he lived for our righteousness. Christ is the only one who can say that he loved his Father perfectly in life with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, his whole being. At the cross then, all our sins were laid on him. Of course, through the whole traumatic event. He remained the holy and spotless Lamb of God in and of Himself. But sins were laid on Him as our sin-bearer. He was punished as our substitute. He was punished in our place. Think of the sports arena, maybe a football team or a soccer team, and let's say it's a soccer team. There is a substitute's bench and the substitute doesn't start the game Uh, he's on the bench and he only comes into the game when someone else goes out of the game he replaces someone he comes in for someone and in a sense that's what has happened we had failed we are sinners Christ Our substitute has come onto the scene of time and in our place lived for us and died for us. What a wonderful picture that is. He was punished 
in our place. As the angel declared to Joseph in Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 1 Peter 2.24, a verse you'll hear me quote often. He himself, talking of Christ, bore our sins in his body, where? On the tree, at the cross there. Goes back to Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We're talking about a double imputation. This is theological language, but it's great to grasp it. Imputation is a word that means to count, to count towards. Uh, we would think of in our modern day a wire trans, uh, transfer where funds from one account is transferred to another. The biblical expression would be to impute. Funds would be imputed from one account to another. Perhaps you've needed to be on the receiving end of a wire transfer, a bank account transfer, where some funds are needed and uh, perhaps a family member is sending funds to you. Maybe it's uh, $50 or more than that, let's say $100, and they are transferring what is in their account to your account. We would call that a transfer, and that's a good word to use. Biblically, we would talk about being uh, the word being to count towards, counted to, or to impute. And here we get the expression imputation. At the cross, there was a double imputation. There's actually three transfers, three imputa imputations uh, mentioned in the Bible. The first is Adam. And his sin, it was counted towards the whole human race. That's a Bible study in itself. We've uh, talked about that before, and it's always worth repeating. But in a nutshell, what Adam did in the garden as our federal head counted to us. Romans 5, verse 12 to the end of the chapter is all about that. As by one man's sin, death entered the world and what he did there counted towards us. We all sinned in Adam. So that's the first transfer, Adam's sin to the entire human race. Everyone born of Adam dies, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. And yet there's two more imputations. Number two is the sins of all God's people were transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. Our sins were laid on him. He has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, to be laid on him. And the third transfer is the righteous life of Christ transferred to all true believers. This is so vital to grasp. If Christ has merely paid the penalty for our sins, our debt to God would have been cancelled. 
and no punishment will be due to us. Thank God for that. But that's not nearly enough to gain an entry into heaven. See, all that would do is simply remove the outstanding debt we owe to God and bring us to zero. If you see uh, a line on your page and make a line on your page and go below it and write the word debt, if debt is removed, say you have a million dollars of debt or more than that and it's cancelled, that's wonderful. If we understand what we are as sinners and how much we've sinned, it's a debt in the trillions if we were to put it in financial terms. But those trillions are wiped out by Christ's death on the cross, him dying in our place. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23, and Christ certainly does remove our debt, but that simply brings us to the zero mark, to that line. What we need to enter heaven is positive righteousness, not merely that our negative, our sins are removed, but we have something positive. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of God. And we need something that is perfect in righteousness, not just a little bit better than average. It has to be perfect. Jesus actually said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word must speaks of necessity. You must, not it would be nice if you had this. No, you must be perfect. And the whole law system when we understand it, according to Romans 3, verse 20, never brings us righteousness. It simply brings out the fact that we're sinners. Let me read Romans 3, verse 20. It's a key verse. For by works of the law, no flesh, no human being will be justified, that means declared righteous, in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. By the works of the law... No one's going to be justified. No flesh, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law brings sin out into the open. So what we need is certainly our sins to be removed, but we need something positive. We need the righteousness of God. Ah, when we understand that, we can understand Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, which was key in the life of Martin Luther in understanding the gospel. Paul writes, Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, it being the gospel, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, again, it being the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, in the gospel, here's the good news. The righteousness of God is revealed. Not merely the righteousness of, of God by means of the standard of righteousness that God has in himself, but the righteousness of God that he makes available to the believer. That's why it's good news. It's not... Uh, good news if God requires absolute righteousness of us and doesn't provide it. 
and we're left to try and keep the law, especially when the Bible says no one keeps the whole law, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. (laughs) Double imputation. Praise the Lord for it. Thank God, sins are cancelled at the cross for the believer. But it's not enough to gain an entry into heaven. That would simply remove the outstanding debt we owe to God, bring us to zero. Zero is never enough. Matthew 5.20, our righteous deeds certainly don't get us to God, but his righteousness does. And that's the answer when we are perplexed about needing righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of God. We as sinners not only need the removal of the negative, our sin, but the presence of the positive, full and complete righteousness to be able to stand before a holy God just in his sight. So not only were our sins transferred, counted towards, imputed to Christ, and he bore their full punishment for us on the cross, but positively, the righteousness of Christ was imputed to us. This is glorious good news. The punishment due to us because of our sin came upon him and the pleasure of God due to Jesus' complete obedience to every jot and tittle of the law came upon us, comes to us, is credited to us. The very righteousness of Jesus Christ is the righteousness imputed to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This righteousness is one that has perfectly fulfilled the entire demands of the law of God. I read someone who probed further into Machen's statement in his telegram that I mentioned earlier, and he was able to find a radio program Machen did just two weeks before his death where he spoke on the active obedience of Christ. Remember that? The active obedience of Christ. Do you remember that expression? And the author summed up what was said in this way. When Dr. Machen talked about the active obedience of Christ, he was speaking of the entire and thoroughgoing obedience of Christ to the commands, laws, decrees, and ordinances of his heavenly Father. In short, Jesus obeyed the entire law of God in every respect, doing all that God required. As Scripture reminds us, Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness and did everything that his Father had given him to do. Dr. Machen was also quick to point out that Christ's active obedience to the will of God is inseparable from his passive obedience. Christ's passive obedience consists of his suffering all the just penalties due to the elect for their sins. He endured all the punishment that we deserve, drinking the cup of God's judgment down to the dregs, draining it to the last bitter drop. Dr. Machen likewise emphasized that although the active obedience and the passive sufferings can be distinguished from one another, they must never be separated. They are inextricably interwoven. 
The cross of Christ, for instance, is simultaneously the ultimate suffering that Christ endured and the greatest act of obedience that he performed. You can't have one without the other and should never attempt to separate the two. End of quote. And here's an actual quote from Machen's radio program. Here it is. If Christ had merely paid the penalty of sin for us and had done nothing more, we should be at best back in the situation in which Adam found himself where God placed him under the covenant of works. In other words, if Christ only paid the penalty for our sins through his passive sufferings, then we're merely transported back to the garden of Eden. Now, Dr. Machen went on to develop his point. That covenant of works was a probation. If Adam kept the law of God for a certain period, he was to have eternal life. If he disobeyed, disobeyed he was to have death. Well, he disobeyed and the penalty of death, death was inflicted on him and his, and his posterity, those that came after him. Then Christ, by his death on the cross, paid that penalty for those whom God had chosen. Well and good. But if that were all that Christ did for us, do you not see that we should be back in just the situation in which Adam was before he sinned? The penalty of his sinning would have been removed from us because it had all been paid by Christ, but for the future, uh, the attainment of eternal life, that would have been dependent upon our perfect obedience to the law of God. We should simply have been back in the probation again. Let me just interject here. When someone is on probation, perhaps they've been released from jail, released from prison, it's like this. We're letting you out, but we're watching you. You're on probation. Should you violate the terms of the agreement that is letting you out, you're back in here, guy. You're back in again, back in prison, back in the jail. Continuing the quote, here we begin to understand why Jesus' passive obedience is not enough if divorced from his active obedience. The passive sufferings of Christ discharged the enormous debt we owe due to our sins and the sin of Adam. In effect, Jesus' passive obedience alone would bring our account from hopelessly overdrawn back to a zero balance, our debt would be retired. But having our debt retired and our sins forgiven does not get us into heaven. It simply returns us to the starting point. More must be done if we are to gain heaven. Righteousness must be completely fulfilled either by us or by a representative acting on our behalf. Oh, that's amazing. Let me say it again. Righteousness must be completely fulfilled either by us or by a representative acting on our behalf. He goes on, moreover, we should have been back in that probation in a very much less hopeful way than that in which our Adam was originally placed in it. Everything was in Adam's favor when he was placed in the probation. He being created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. 
He'd been created positively good, yet despite all that he fell. How much more likely would we be to fall, nay, how certain to fall, if all that Christ had done for us was merely to remove from us the guilt of past sin, leaving it then to our own efforts to win the reward which God had pronounced upon perfect obedience. End of quote. Oh, I hope your heart is stirred by this. This, ladies and gentlemen, is, is, it just brings the gospel to a colorful, delightful thing, the thing that it really is. So, although we would have been transported back to Eden again, the effects of the fall would not have been entirely reversed. We've been put, we would have been put into a probationary situation with far worse prospects than Adam faced. And if Adam, endowed with original righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, was liable to fall, how much more certainly would we fail the test? Therefore, to possess only Jesus' passive sufferings, his passive obedience, leads to a rather hopeless scenario. We're reassigned to take a test that we're guaranteed to fail. We'll never get to heaven if we are forced to rely on our own active obedience to God's righteous demands. On the other hand, if Jesus passively suffered for our sins and actively obeyed all of God's righteous requirements on our behalf, ladies and gentlemen, then heaven is absolutely guaranteed to us as believers. And this is why Dr. Machen's understanding of the complete obedience of Christ, especially his active obedience, filled him with such joyful confidence. To quote Dr. Machen again, that is the reason why those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ are in a far more blessed condition than was Adam before he fell. Adam before he fell was righteous in the sight of God, but he was still under the possibility of becoming unrighteous. Those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ not only are righteous in the sight of God, but they are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. In their case, the probation is over. It's not over because they've stood it successfully. It's not over because they have themselves earned the reward of assured blessedness, which God promised on condition of perfect obedience, but it's over because Christ has stood it for them. It is over because Christ has merited for them the reward by his perfect obedience to God's law. Wow. Now, the commentator went on to say, do you see, Christ has passed the test. He's earned the reward. Heaven has been secured by his perfect obedience to God's law. And he did not do all this for himself as if he needed to earn heaven for himself. He did all this for his people, even for you, true believer. On your behalf, he actively obeyed, thereby saving you and placing you, thank God, beyond the possibility of ever becoming unrighteous again. Your status is secured eternally. What a great hope.
end of quote. So when you comprehend the full obedience of Jesus Christ, both active and passive, you understand why Dr. Machen had such great hope as he lay upon his deathbed. In his own words, how gloriously complete is the salvation wrought by, for us by Christ. Christ paid the penalty and he merited the reward. Those are the two great things he has done for us. Amen. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Yet there's complete hope with it. Amen. Amen. The work of Christ is perfect in every respect and every aspect. The righteousness now enjoyed by the believer is an alien one. Alien justitium in Latin. It's one that comes from outside of ourselves. For it's the righteousness of Christ himself. He comes to us as a gift, not something earned. Those who receive the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let me read verse 17 of Romans 5. For if by one man's trespass, that's Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, this is now speaking about the entire life of Christ, leads to justification in life for all men, all men who believe. Praise the Lord. It's the cause of our rejoicing in the presence of God forever. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21, For he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As believers in Christ, we've been made righteous with a righteousness that has never known sin and has fully complied with all the righteous demands of the law. Hallelujah! What a Savior. We've talked already in this series on Reformed Basics about what we call the formal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura. That was the form in which the whole debate took place. Who or what speaks for God? And for the Reformers going to the Bible, the answer to the question, who speaks for God? The answer is Scripture. God speaks through the Scripture, and God speaks through Scripture alone. The Bible alone is the Word of God. That's the formal principle of the Reformation, as it's called. There was a second principle called the material principle. And if you think about it, it's the matter. Once you understand who speaks for God and the answer is Scripture, 
we go to the scripture to find out how do we gain right standing with God. And that was the whole matter of the Reformation. The material principle was sola fide, or fide, sola fide, faith alone. And by that, the reformers were saying justification, that means to be declared right in the sight of God, God declaring us right, sola fide, justification is by faith alone. Think of the thief on the cross. Luke 23, verse 39. Perhaps you'll turn there. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. We read these words. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Think of that scene. I've often contemplated not only that scene but a potential scene in my mind as one by one the proponents of all religions were given the opportunity of talking to the thief on the cross and if God gave them the ability to somehow speak so that the thief on the cross could understand them in his own language I imagine what they would say to him you see this man was a criminal He was a notorious sinner, definitely one whose so-called bad deeds would outweigh the good ones. Now, you know this, being nailed to the cross negates any further opportunity for good works to be done. You can't buy groceries for anybody and take it to them. You can't help someone cross a street. You can't do anything. You're nailed to a cross. You can't do any more good works. But it would be a very interesting conversation, wouldn't it, to hear what each proponent of religion might say to the man. In every case, now hear this, in every case, apart from perhaps the universalist who teaches that everybody is saved regardless of their works, Each religious proponent would require the man to somehow come down from the cross to do something. If he is a notorious sinner, he's got to remedy that by his actions. So think about that. What would a a spokesman for Islam say? How about a Mormon? How about a Jehovah's Witness? What would a Buddhist say? What what would a New Age guru say? How about a Roman Catholic? You see, if each could speak to this man about advice, about how they could then say, by this you'll be saved, whatever they define by that, whatever they mean by the words saved and to be saved, 
Some might say that all he could do would be to hope for mercy. That's the best they could do. Hope for mercy. But Christ, the biblical Christ, you know this, gave him far more than just hope. (laughs) In contrast to what all man-made religious systems could give the man, the Lord Jesus Christ gave him full assurance of salvation. And not just eventual salvation after countless years in the fires of purgatory, but bliss and paradise, ladies and gentlemen, that very day. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, certain religions would require baptism. Well, that's impossible. He's nailed to a cross. Certain religions would require him to have some spiritual experience, perhaps even speak with tongues. The list could be endless, but others would require the man to go through religious instruction and devotion of some sort. Others would ask him to do more good works before his death, hoping that somehow those good works might outweigh the bad ones. But here's the point. The man could never find salvation in those religious systems because he was stuck, he was pinned, he was nailed to a cross. He had no more chance to give to charity or live a life of service. He's nailed to a cross. Works and service were no longer possible. His was a totally hopeless case, except that crucified next to him was someone who was able to save him by what he was doing rather than what the man might do. You see, only the real biblical Jesus with the real biblical gospel could announce to a criminal that before the day was over, he would be with him in paradise. That thief's salvation portrays the gospel so clearly. Someone embracing anything other than the biblical gospel can only scratch their heads in wonder at the precious words given to this man, for in this system such words would be In their system, such words would be impossible to say. The Roman Catholic proponent, he couldn't say that. The Buddhist couldn't say that. The Islam proponent, he couldn't say it. The Mormon couldn't say it. The Jehovah's Witness couldn't say it. But Jesus can. And that's the message of the Bible. As far as I know... This man was close to, could be, the only person in the Bible that Jesus gave instantaneous assurance of salvation to. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Ladies and gentlemen, that removes all doubt. Can we know what was going on in the heart of this man? Well, we don't have perfect understanding, but putting the pieces of the biblical text together, we can get quite a good picture What is clear from the Gospels of Matthew and Mark is that this man had been amongst the many who had mocked Christ. Yet seemingly out of nowhere, he turns to the other thief and says, Don't you fear God? Now obviously this thief was now fearing God for him to be asking this question of the other one. 
So he feared God. He also knew he was getting exactly what he deserved. His words were these, We indeed suffer justly. He also recognized the innocence of Christ when he said, This man has done nothing wrong. He feared God. He knew he was getting exactly what he deserved. And he recognized the innocence of Christ. This man's done nothing wrong. When he turned to Jesus and requested, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, knowing that death was inevitable for all three of those crucified, he believed Jesus would triumph over death and therefore would be resurrected. Remember me when you come into your kingdom? He knew death was inevitable, but believed Jesus would triumph and would be crowned king. (laughs) That's supernatural faith. And that's what's given to the believer, isn't it? You believe that. You believe Jesus was sinless. You believe Jesus died. You believe he rose again. You believe he's king, enthroned in heaven even now. You believe that. That's what faith is. It's faith in that Jesus, the God-man, truly God, truly man. In affirming the fact that Jesus would come into his kingdom, he affirmed the lordship or even the deity of Christ. How much of this he knew, we, we don't know, but obviously he knew that Christ was indeed king. Didn't look like that at the time, did it? Didn't see that with earthly eyes. God gave him sight to see. He had an awareness of divine judgment. He knew the availability of forgiveness. He believed Christ was the true king and that in Christ there is hope even for him. He knew of the coming kingdom and wanted to be part of it. As God opens our hearts and minds to the one true biblical gospel, we also find in Christ the full assurance of salvation. As we turn away from any attempt at self-justification, knowing that it is by grace that we are saved through faith, and all of this is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So we too will enjoy the sweet, saving mercy of God. What a testimony to the gospel this thief is. I want to meet him in heaven. His testimony, you know this? It's exactly the same as mine. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. God saves sinners through the perfect work of the perfect Savior plus nothing. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. We thank you for our only comfort in life and death that we are not our own but belong with body and soul both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We thank you for the assurance of salvation. We thank you for the message of the gospel and at the heart of it is a doctrine, justification by faith alone. Romans 3.28, Romans 4, 4 and 5, Romans 5, 1, many other scriptures. That's just Romans. There's more in Romans there. Lord, we are so thankful, not only for the hope of salvation, but the assurance of salvation. It's an assured hope. We thank you. There is not only no hope without it, but there's every hope and a short hope with the knowledge of Christ in his active obedience for us, his righteousness. Oh, righteous Lord Jesus, we recognize, according to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, you are made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Jesus' name.